Well, this week we are we're continuing our, our, our discussion on church leadership. And so this is church leadership part two, uh, and we're going to look specifically at the role of the congregation. Okay, so we're, it's leadership part two, congregationalism part one. Okay, I, I realize it's going to get confusing, but um, this, is, this is where we are. Uh, and so, so last week we saw that, that any discussion on leadership within the church must begin with the leader of the church. And so last week we looked at Christ as the head. He is the one who is in charge. He is the ruler, the, the king, the lord of his church. And so the foundation is that we are Christ's church. We are his people and we follow him. And so hopefully none of that is controversial. I'm pretty sure that, that it would be agreed upon by, by everyone here, hopefully among all Christians in the world, that Christ is the head of his church. That, that's clearly laid out in the New Testament. Christ is Lord, and he is the, the rightful Lord of his church. But even though there's agreement with that, that big picture among different churches and denominations regarding Christ as the head of the church, that, that general agreement begins to, to disappear when you begin to look specifically at structures and forms of church leadership and within different churches and different denominations. And so the more you begin to look at and take note of the different types of church leadership and structures within churches who would claim Christ as their head, the more you recognize that diversity abounds. And so in, uh, among those churches who say Christ is Lord, there, there's diversity and so just to set the stage and thinking about just our, our country in America, broadly speaking, there, there are really three types of church government. So there's the Episcopalian form of church government where you have bishops and ministers or, or priests or rectors. And so an Episcopalian form of church government is the Catholic church. And that's confusing, but the Catholic church is structured in an Episcopalian form of government where we have bishops and priests. And in the Catholic Church, of course, you have the Pope and the, the hierarchical offices underneath him. But so you have Episcopalian, you have Presbyterian form of church government where we have things like a general assembly that, that will meet yearly. You have synods that meet. You have presbyteries and, and sessions. These are how Presbyterian churches organize themselves and, and how the authority runs in that denomination and in those churches. Then you have forms of congregational churches where there's congregational forms of government, which again has numerous outworkings and takes many forms. And so, so you have these three main big pictures, think, think of three big tents that, that majority of churches in our country fall under. And, and these all forms are, are, are they're, they're types of polity. So that's the word I'm going to use, it's polity. So church polity has to do with how a church organizes itself. How is it structured? Who's in charge? And so you have these three main types or forms of polity, but even within there, as I mentioned, there's diversity. And so an Episcopalian church in Virginia may, may be different than an Episcopalian church uh, in, in another part of the country or a Catholic church, or, or you have diversity within these different forms, Presbyterian models. They're more uniformed, I think, in the whole, but even within Presbyterian churches, there are various leadership structures, and then congregational models vary from church to church. And my point in mentioning all this diversity is simply to remind you that even in the midst of all these variations of church governments, so in, in this diversity and all these different tents, I would say almost all, if not all of them, are unified in their acknowledgement of Christ as the head. All would say, yes, we're, we're trying to follow Jesus as Lord, and, and this is how we do it. And so all would agree with last week's sermon. And so the question I want to ask this morning 
And the question I want to begin to answer is whether or not it really matters how we organize ourselves. Does that really matter? As a church, is it important how we structure ourselves? I mean, if, if, if we can all agree that Christ is the head, do the details really matter? Those one following Christ, does it really matter who's in charge or, or who has what office or who does what? I mean, doesn't the fact that there's so many different variations and denominations tell us from the beginning that the end result doesn't really matter so long as Christ is the head? Doesn't the variety mean that the answer can't really be that clear? These are some thoughts. Well, if if no one can agree, if we have all this variation, well, why why even spend time looking at it? Well, I would answer those questions pretty firmly that even though there is variation, even though there are numerous forms of church polity, even though there is disagreement among Christians, none of these things withstanding, how we organize ourselves is important. It still matters. I believe that Scripture, it matters because I believe Scripture makes a pretty strong and, dare I say, clear case regarding how the church is to structure itself. I think the New Testament makes a clear argument as to how a New Testament church should organize itself. Just because there's lack of unity on the specifics doesn't mean that it isn't important. It's important, and the diversity only pushes us to carefully consider the testimony of Scripture. And so that's what I want to do over this week and in the coming weeks. I want us to examine the Scriptures. What does the New Testament say? How ought we to organize ourselves? I don't want to convince you with my rhetoric. I want you to see with your own eyeballs the New Testament and and how the church is organized there. Now, as an aside, just to make clear, I'm convinced personally of the correct or the biblical form of church government. And and I'm convinced. I believe it strongly. But I also recognize that disagreement on specifics of church polity does not rise to the level of other disagreements. In other words, Christians... Christians can still be Christians and disagree strongly about church polity. So, so we can still maintain an affirmation of Christ as the head. We can, we, can, we can affirm gospel clarity that Christ died in our place for us, and that's our only hope. We can affirm these basics while still disagreeing about how we structure ourselves. So how we structure ourselves does not necessarily cause us to lose the unity that the gospel creates. Does that make sense? And so I can, I can disagree, and I do disagree with some of the ways that churches on this very road organize themselves. I think they do it wrong. I think they do. But I can also, while, while thinking that, can still recognize that they get the gospel right and we're still on the same team. We still get the gospel right. So we, so we have gospel partners that, that agree, but it's important to recognize that there are disagreements and we should know why we disagree. And so over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to lead us through some of the specific New Testament verses and passages um, that, that I think make the clear argument of the pattern of New Testament church polity. Again, like I said, I don't want my rhetoric to convince you. I don't want to be overly passionate. I just want you to see, here's, here's the scriptures. Let's look at the scriptures. And so this morning, we're going to begin by looking at the role and authority of the New Testament congregation. So I have this, this diagram up um, on the PowerPoint. And so I, I, I mentioned this last week, but so here's kind of the big picture. Um, now, I'm not going to go into details, but just so you know, last week we looked at Christ. This week we're going to look at the role of the congregation, who is, I believe, holds the, the authority, the highest level of human authority under Christ. Okay, so, so we'll, work that, we'll work that out. Um, but this week, this week, we're just going to look at the congregation, okay? And so as we look at it, here's the outline for this morning. We're going to look at the definition of congregationalism. We're going to look at the foundation of congregationalism. 
And then third, the New Testament evidence for congregationalism. Now, when I first started this, this sermon, all three points were, were going to be covered today. Uh, but as I finished this sermon, for your sake and for mine, it became clear that we should break it down into two parts. Okay, so, so we're going to cover points one and two today. And then next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the third part. Okay, we're going to look at the third point, the, the New Testament evidence. Okay, so this week we're going to look at, at the definition of congregationalism briefly, but then we're going to spend our time looking at the foundation of congregationalism. And so we're, we're, going, to, we're going to aim to do that this morning. So as, as, we, as we continue, let's, let's pray together and ask God to help us. Father, we, we are thankful to be included in the body of Christ. We are partakers of Christ by your grace alone. And so we want to ask that as we, as your people, as your new covenant people, that, that we would cherish the promises that are ours through Christ. And Lord, help us as a local church to be faithful to Christ our Lord uh, and to follow him individually and corporately. So help us this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So first, let, let's look. Let's look at the definition of congregationalism. And so I'm just starting here because I think it's helpful for us to, to get off on the, on, the, on the same page from the get-go. And so a, a definition of congregationalism that I came across that I think is helpful is simply this, quote, Congregationalism presents a picture of each local church governing its own affairs under the lordship of Christ. So congregationalism presents a picture of each local church governing its own affairs under the lordship of Christ. Instead of an individual, whether it's a bishop or a priest or a pope, or whether it's a group of leaders like a presbytery or a synod, instead of that, in congregationalism, the congregation exercises the ultimate human authority in the church. Okay, so the congregation exercises the ultimate human authority in the church, but it does so under Christ's divine authority. The congregation exercises its authority subject to the authority of Christ. And so congregationalism teaches that the members of an individual church are not only capable of exercising proper authority in the church, but also that they are divinely called to do such. If you're a church member, you have a job description. It's an office. Church member has authority. And so as a member of this congregation, or if you're a member of another congregation that's congregational, you have God-given authority. You should just know that. Now, before you get too excited, that authority, like we said last week, must be used under the headship of Christ. That, that's why that, that diagram is so important. Christ is the head. So in other words, your authority as a church member doesn't simply give you the right to do what you want to do or to make the decisions that you think are right. That's not congregational authority. It's not just for your sake. Your authority has been given to you by God to be exercised under the lordship of Christ. Christ is the head, and under him the congregation has authority. To put it another way, the congregation is the highest level of human authority in the church. This is why autonomy, maybe you've heard that word, autonomy is often a trademark of congregationalism. Autonomy just means it operates unto itself. When a congregation is the highest level of human authority, it means that the congregation is self-governed. So, so there's no outside group of people or outside agency or organization that can come in and say, Fox Hill Road Baptist Church, this is what you have to do. No, the Southern Baptist Convention can't, they have no authority over us. We are in friendly cooperation with them, 
We're, we're co- cooperatively unified with a whole lot of other churches because we've unified around, around some, some common beliefs. However, we are still in control of how we run this church. So, so no one down the street can come and say, hey, you, you guys have to fire that pastor. Right? If you want me fired, it has to be you that does it. And we have a constitution bylaws that tells you how to do it. I may not give it to you, but, but it's there. <laughs> but your authority is to, be, is to be exercised under the authority of Christ. And the congregation is the, the highest level of human authority. And so the congregation has the authority to guard and protect the church. And so something like false teaching. If a pastor, a leader, begins teaching false doctrine, it is the congregation's role to guard this pulpit. This is a sacred place where truth is to be conveyed. If truth stops being conveyed from here, you step up and and you remove me. Let me be accursed if I preach a gospel other than the one that you've believed, Paul would say in Galatians chapter 1. And I, I second that. If I ever start preaching a gospel by good works, a gospel by baptism, a, a salvation that is not biblical, you have my permission. Remove me and do it fast. The authority of the congregation is to be used to guard and protect the church. When the authority of a member, of a church member, begins to be used in ways that are, that are not following Christ, that are anti-Christ or are unchristian, that is an abuse of authority. The authority of the congregation is meant to follow Christ, to lead the church to follow Christ. And when that authority is is used to to derail from the following of Christ, it is an abuse of authority, and it is evil. I'm going to look at specifics next week, but at this point we're simply establishing congregationalism as it's defined. So congregation authority is given for the good of the church and is always to be exercised in order to maintain faithfulness to Christ. And so all spheres of leadership are subject to Christ. And so when a congregation uses its authority to hinder the church's faithfulness to Christ, whether it's a church using its authority to prevent a church from ministering, whether it's a a congregation refusing to use its authority to maintain the purity of the church, whether it's a church using its authority to create division in the church, when this happens, it's an abuse of authority. And so we should simply recognize that this does happen. There are congregational churches that abuse their authority. I mean, that, that's, that's a reality. That, that's life in a fallen world. When you have fallen people in positions of authority, there is often abuse. And so there's lots of people, maybe some of you, who've been burned by churches. Maybe some of your kids, your, your grandkids, your neighbors. I, I'm done with church because of a way a church treated me or my family or my grandparents or my great-great-great-grandparents, right? It, it, it lasts because when churches burn people, it leaves a mark, and while I acknowledge that, that churches have done great harm, I also want to be sure and say that we have to be careful not to throw out the baby with the bathwater because, as you'll see, I still believe that congregational authority is a God-given thing and has been given for the good of the church. And that when congregational authority is exercised in good and healthy ways, it's a beautiful thing. I still believe that. I think that's God's plan. And so abuses of God-ordained authority in God-ordained systems must not lead us to forsake these God-ordained systems like marriage or parenting or government. You don't, you don't throw out the entire system because someone abuses their authority, whether it's a husband or a dad or, or a, a leader. These are God-ordained structures. And so in congregationalism, the congregation exercises the ultimate human authority in the church under Christ's divine authority. 
Now, we'll see this in, in coming weeks, but autonomy of the local church, the, the congregational authority, does not mean that the congregation is the only authority. It's not the only authority. That's important. So, so this congregational church is not a direct democracy. It's not direct. So, so there's other realms of authority. There are leaders, there are pastors who are given with authority also. And, and so, so there, there's the, this dynamic, this, this dance of authority. It's not the congregation is the only authority. No other authority exists. That's not how this, the New Testament lays it out. I mean, maybe some of you are familiar with churches where, where it's the case where it's just direct dem- democracy, where every little thing has to be voted on. We're congregational, so everything has to be voted on. That, that's not, I think, I don't think that's the, the biblical model there. When the only authority is the congregation, when everything else must come before the congregation, from, from great decision to, to, to little inconsequential decision, when that's the case, there's no need for leaders. If the congregation has the only authority then there's no, no reason for a leader to, to, to lead. And so it's not simply direct democracy where it's for the people, by the people. That, that's not the New Testament church. As we'll see, there's multiple levels of authority in the New Testament. The congregation has authority, but, but the, the elders, the pastors, the leaders have authority. And in the best case scenario, both work together. Again, congregationalism assumes under the lordship of Christ and under the authority of divinely given elders who lead, the last and final court of appeal in matters related to the local church is the congregation itself. So it's not the only congregation, but is the final congregation or final authority. Well, that, that's all we'll say in terms of defining congregationalism. I'm going to look at the, the big picture. So we're going to move to the second point, the foundation of congregationalism. And so as we step back, we're going to spend the, the rest of our time this morning looking at its foundation because the foundation of congregationalism isn't found in the New Testament. It's actually in the Old Testament. And so, and so I want to look at the foundation of why I think that congregationalism is the biblical form of church polity. So, so let's look secondly, the foundation. So the main idea here, the, the, the summary sentence for the second point is simply to say that, the new, that New Testament congregationalism is tied to and dependent upon the nature of the new covenant. So, so congregationalism and how we understand how it functions is tied to and dependent upon the nature of the new covenant. So understanding congregationalism requires understanding the nature of the new covenant, which we just saw Christ has instituted through his death and resurrection. And so the new covenant that, that, has, been, that has been instituted by Christ himself brings a drastic change. And this change is essential to understanding why we're congregational, why I think congregationalism is the New Testament form of church polity. So change results as, as Christ institutes his new covenant. Now the change isn't in the character of the mission of, mission of God. God doesn't change, but what changes in the new covenant is the structure and the very nature of God's people. So that new covenant Christians, which is just another way of saying those who've been united to Christ, Christians, New Covenant Christians have an unparalleled place in the plan of God, a privileged place, if you will, in God's plan. One author puts it this way, to be a member of the New Covenant community is to be united to Christ and to have His Spirit. In fact, not to have the Spirit is not to have Christ or to be His people. And so New Covenant Christians, that's all of us, all those who have put their faith in Christ post-death, resurrection, ascension, have been given the Spirit and are 
related to God in ways that never was, was a reality before. The new covenant realities are a privileged position for us to be in. So those like us who are on this side of the death, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ experience in reality what those who were before us only longed for. So we receive the Spirit in a way that's unlike any other time in history before the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. And so every member of the new covenant, every person who's a Christian, receives the Holy Spirit upon faith and repentance. Every member of the new covenant community receives the Holy Spirit permanently upon their profession of faith. Every member of the new covenant community receives the Holy Spirit for the purpose of being a minister among God's people. And this is true of every new covenant member. So covenant membership is not mediated through, through a, a priest or through Aaron or through Abraham. It is, a, it is a priest, it's Christ, but it's in a way that's different than ever was before. So that the experiences of new covenant members are, are total and exhaustive. We receive the Spirit. It's a drastic change. There's great benefit to being members of the new covenant. This is why Jesus could say in Matthew 11... Jesus is on the scene, and, and there's, there's discussion around John the Baptist, and Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He says he's the greatest man that's ever lived. I mean, that's what he's saying. Now, now remember, John the Baptist had the, the privileged position of, of being the forerunner to Christ. He prepares the way. So it is a great privilege for John. But Jesus continues in Matthew 11, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than even John the Baptist. Well, wait a minute. How does he say that? He says it because the coming of Christ, the establishment of this new covenant, marks a significant shift so that the greatest old covenant prophet, John the Baptist, who paved the way for the Messiah, is surpassed by each and every member of the new covenant. Which is not to belittle John the Baptist, but to elevate the members of the kingdom of God, the new covenant people. New Covenant believers occupy a unique and privileged place, which, and the, the reason I'm mentioning this, this is central to understanding the role of the congregation in the New Testament church. In order to show you the New Covenant benefits that belong to those in Christ, I want to I I briefly look at three Old Testament passages. And we'll look at these specific passages because they look forward to this New Covenant reality that we now live in. And I want to show you from the Old Testament itself the nature of the new covenant and the specific marks of new covenant membership that we are now living in. Okay, so, and this forms the foundation of our view of congregationalism. So first, Jeremiah 31. You can write these down. I'll read them. You don't have to turn there. You can write them down. So Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. So Jeremiah, sometimes known as the weeping prophet, so he ministers during a very dark time in, in the history of Israel. He, he had witnessed the deportation of many of his fellow Jews, the, the elites, to Babylon. He, he, he'd even seen the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the invading Babylonians. And so, so he's prophesying, Jeremiah is ministering in a time of exile for the Israelites. So, so, so it's a bleak time. And it's in this, in this context that Jeremiah prophesies about a new covenant, a time that's coming in the future, Jeremiah says, when both Jerusalem and Judah, both kingdoms, will be unified and God's people will be marked by specific things. So listen to Jeremiah. I'm going to read verses 31 through 34 of chapter 31. And listen to what, how he describes this new covenant, this time coming. Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And that's the old covenant under Moses. Not like that. That was my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. This is a new covenant. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why not? For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. And so the change that Jeremiah points to is in the new covenant, every single new covenant member will know the Lord. Which tells us the old covenant, they didn't all know him in the way that Jeremiah is talking about. This is an intimate knowledge, and Jeremiah is saying there's a day coming when the Lord is going to put his spirit within his people, and they're going to know him intimately and completely and fully, and they're going to have a relationship with him that is not like the current situation when Jeremiah is writing. And so Hebrews 8 will pick up this, this exact same quote, and the author of Hebrews will make the argument that the new covenant is so much better because... Jeremiah says this new covenant is coming. The fact that he talks about a new covenant says the old is not good. The new is going to be much better. And he, the, Hebrews, the, the point of the author in Hebrews 8 is that the new covenant people of God are unique because of what Christ has done as the high priest, as the mediator. And so the characteristics of the new covenant people that Jeremiah prophesied that, that are now a reality for us as new covenant members is, is that we first have the law internalized so we don't have it on tablets, right? The, the law is written on our hearts. We're given new hearts so that, so that we know the, the law of the Lord. We, we know how to, to love Him, what we're called to do. There's an internalizing of, of His law, of what pleases Him. And, and we also, verse 34, we, we know Him. Again, this is different than just knowing about Him. This is a new covenant, an intimate. I mean, think about it in, in Genesis Chapter 3, and Adam knew Eve, and they conceived and had a son. She didn't just know him mentally, right? It's an intimacy, and, and Jeremiah says, in the new covenant, they're all going to know me. So you don't have to even tell, hey, you need to know the Lord, or you need to know the Lord. Why? For they're all going to know me, Jeremiah says. And so the new covenant reality is that there are none who don't know the Lord, which means that congregations are made up of those who know the Lord. Church membership is reserved only for new covenant Christians, those who are re redeemed by Christ and are united to Him. Every member of the new covenant knows God. That, that's the first foundation for congregationalism. Second, Numbers chapter 11, verses 16 through 30. Again, you can just write this down. But in this context, the Israelites have just left Sinai. They're in the wilderness. Moses is, is leading them. He's getting frustrated. right? He, he's overloaded. He's burdened. And so the Lord, seeing that, tells Moses, hey, Moses, go get 70 elders. Go get 70 men that, that are of good reputation and, and bring them to me. And so, so Moses does that. Moses brings them in. And what the Lord does, he says, okay, Moses, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take some of my spirit that I've given to you, and I'm going to spread it out among these 70 men that you bring together before me. That's what he's going to do. He's going he's to help Moses bear the burden. Okay, And so that's what happens. The 70 elders gather... 
And here's Numbers chapter 11. I'm going to read, begin reading in verse 24. So Moses went out and he told the people the words of the Lord. That's the plan. So Moses tells them. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and he placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to Moses and the 70 elders. And he took some of the spirit that was on Moses and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not continue doing it. Okay, so, so it, I mean, this is a fascinating account. These 70 men come, and the Lord takes some of the spirit that he's given to Moses to lead Moses and spreads it among the 70. Right? And, and so evidence that they've received the spirit is they start prophesying. But, but listen how the story continues. Verse 26. Now, two men remained in the camp. So they didn't make the trip with the 70 elders. So there's two men, one Eldad and the other Medad. Right? Not the best names, but those are these two men. Right? And, and verse 26 says, the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied where they were in, in the camp. And a young man, he ran and told, Mo, told Moses, Eldad and Medad, they're prophesying in the camp. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, who's Moses' assistant, hears this and thinks, oh no, big problem. So he runs to Moses and says, my Lord Moses, stop the two men that are prophesying in the camp. Stop them. They weren't with the 70. They're doing something they're not supposed to do. And then Moses says, this is, this is Numbers eleven twenty nine. 29. Moses said, are you jealous for my sake? And this, notice what he says to, to Aaron, or to Joshua. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. And so Moses says to Joshua, you're upset that there are two extra people that have the Spirit? You're complaining about that? I wish every Israelite had the Spirit. That's what he says. I wish they all did. That's Moses' longing. He's not prophesying. He's not predicting. But he describes a situation that would be his wildest dreams come true where every single member of the covenant had the Spirit of God. Moses says, I wish that were the case. And so the takeaway here, Moses longed for a day when every member of God's covenant people would have his Spirit. Guess what? That's the new covenant reality. Every one of God's people has the Spirit uniquely. That's one of the blessings of the new covenant. That's what happens post-Pentecost. Fast forward to the, the third text. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. The third text is Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. Now I'm just going to read this. Ezekiel, again, looking forward, says, There's a day coming when I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. And so again, this is a forward looking by Ezekiel. And so you have Ezekiel and you have Jeremiah both looking forward to a day where, where God will move uniquely among his people. And it's going to be a, a spirit thing, a new heart thing, a, an obedience thing. And so this would be a significant change in the identity and function of God's people. And so as we, as we step back and look at these three passages, right, the, this new covenant reality that, that we live in that was, that was foreshadowed in the Old, Old Testament sets the foundation for congregational authority. The new covenant was going to be a huge deal. In fact, the new covenant was going to be the main point or the climax of the entire storyline of Scripture because the new covenant would be established by Christ himself, by his death and resurrection. 
And so what you have in the New Testament after the ascension of Christ in the book of Acts is you have the realization of all these new covenant promises. So as, as the apostles are, are, are ministering, as they're, as they're going from city to city, they're, they're preaching the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Spirit is falling on people who repent and believe in Jesus. And so the early church is realizing the new covenant realities. And they understand it. Wait, this all, I mean, Joel 2 is used to, to justify the coming of Pentecost when everyone will prophesy. They say, well, this, this is what we're living in, the new covenant. And so New Testament church stands forth as this new covenant community carrying out its mission as part of God's one unified people. A, a, a new covenant people who all know God, who have all received God's spirit, which is why when we think about and discuss congregationalism, we do so recognizing structural changes that have come to God's people as we've, as we've transitioned from old to new. The reality is all of God's people are empowered and gifted by his spirit. All have access to God. All know God. All are ministers. And as such, the entire congregation should be involved in the governance of the church. Do you see that connection? If, if all know God, if all have the spirit, then of course all should take a part in leading and governing the church. The New Covenant Rally is a foundation, the foundation for congregationalism. And so a church that seeks to follow Christ consists of men and women who are set on following Christ. That's how a local church works. And so when that isn't the case, when you have a church that is not seeking to follow Christ, you have a church that's not set on following Christ, the solution isn't a new pastor, a new program, or new building. The solution is understanding the nature of the New Covenant and the necessity of having church members that are actually Christians. Because when Christians make up the total citizenship of a local church, that church is in safe hands. Because all have the Spirit and all know the Lord. There's one Spirit who will lead a church in one direction. The New Covenant reality is what gives us confidence in congregational authority. When congregationalism goes astray, it's because the members are not Christians. And that is a problem. You don't want a mixed bag. You don't want Christians and non-Christians leading a church. You're not safe there. But the New Covenant gives us guardrails because every Christian, yeah, there's going to be disagreement but when I'm seeking to follow Christ and when you're seeking to follow Christ and you're seeking to follow Christ, our disagreement will always end in unity because it's bigger than me and you. It's all about Christ and what he wants for the church. And so as we close, if you're a member of Fox Hill Road Baptist Church, your, your number one priority, your main function, your God-given purpose is to follow Jesus, to love Christ, to worship Christ, to honor him, to lay down your life for his sake. And to do your part in ensuring that this church does the same thing. You follow Christ and ensure that your brothers and sisters are following Christ. And if, if everyone's doing that, we're going to be okay. If you're a new covenant church member, you've been given authority for the express purpose of ensuring that this church faithfully follows Christ. And so you have great authority. And so I want to call you to use that authority for the good of this church, to help this church faithfully maintain its God-given mission. You are a new covenant member. 
The gospel is good news for you and for me. We have new covenant promises. Well, this is, this is where we're going to stop this week. We're going to pick up next week looking at New Testament evidence for congregationalism. But, but as we close, let's, let's pray and let's thank God for this, this new covenant reality that, that we experience.